Welcome to a Tech Policy Podcast. I'm Ashkan Kazarian. On today's show, we're going to talk about encryption, and I have a very special guest to talk about it. Jim Baker is Director of National Security and Cybersecurity at the Art Street Institute. He is CNN Legal Analyst and Lecturer of Law at the Harvard Law School, and he's former general counsel of FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigations. Jim, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, it is amazing to have someone with your experience on the show to talk about these issues because obviously you have seen every site, you know, now you're in a research institutions, so you were in government. Um, can you tell our listeners before we dive into the substance uh, a little bit more about your career and like how it developed and how did you end up at FBI? So I started out at the Justice Department uh, many years ago as a fraud prosecutor and then eventually worked in the office that represented the United States before the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. And I became the head of that office uh, just before 9-11, stayed in there for a number of years. And then I've held other jobs at DOJ, working on national security and cybersecurity, also in the private sector uh, a couple different times at uh, at companies. And then um, I came to the FBI Let's see, in 2014, I had worked uh, in a few different jobs with uh, Jim Comey, who became director. When he became director, he asked me to be the, the general counsel. So that's that's how I ended up uh, at the FBI. And I was there for about a little over four years. And um, how did you decide to then go into the think tank policy world and kind of do what we do here, which is basically like scream into a void and hope that someone hears us? So as you may have heard, Jim Comey got fired. <laughs> and so when he got fired, then uh, I stayed around for about an almost another year after that. I guess it was about a year. Uh, working first for Andy McCabe, who was the acting director, and then for Chris Ray. And when Chris uh, got his feet on the ground, he decided to bring in his own team, and he wanted to bring in a new general counsel. And so I stepped aside, and I did a different job for a period of time uh, at the Bureau. But then I left and went to Brookings and Lawfare for a period of time as a visiting fellow, and then to the R Street Institute. So it's been a big transition. It's not something I'm used to. Doing podcasts and being on the, on the media and talking to reporters and all this is not, you know, it was not the job that I expected I would have when I was back there working on FISA-related matters. So, but I'm here and I'm talking because I think it's important to to continue, it's important for me to continue to make a contribution to the country and to speak out about the things that I, I care about that I think are important for uh, protecting uh, protecting America. We are very grateful for everything you've done. And uh, just as we mentioned off air, uh, right before we started, you and I have been in meetings together when I would represent civil liberties with other groups and you would represent at FBI. And those were very off the record, but I would say very heated. I think I can say that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's nice to have you, you know, a little more less restrained um, by representing the agency and being able to still give your judgment on things. And I know you're very honest about some things and it's um, great because when you, in a, on a lot of issues in DC, and I can definitely say about civil liberties and tech policy in general, um, people are often very much uh, this side or that side. It's black and white for them. And um, tech freedom itself has been try, tried to operate in the middle has tried to have a more reasonable, pragmatic solution to things because we think that's what pushes innovation and that's what protects civil liberties. Um, and so it's good to see the work that you're doing because I think you're also trying to operate from a very like realistic perspective. Like you're like, okay, here's here's a reality check. A lot of your pieces start with, here's a reality <laughs> check. Um, so let's dive into encryption because that has been, an, again, for the, I don't even know, 
I've been doing this for like almost five years. How many times have you talked about encryption? I've talked about encryption a lot. I've worked on it for for many years in a variety of different settings. And uh, sometimes I think I want to escape from it and uh, it keeps rearing its head. But I, I guess it's it's it, at the end of the day, it's a good thing because it is really an important issue that the country has to focus on. And so I'm happy to be here and, and talking about right. it. It's, it's a groundhog day in a way, but maybe sooner or later we're going to have society that understands encryption and, you know, pros and cons and things that come with it. And then when the society decides to make a its opinion on it, then hopefully our lawmakers can make policies out of it. That's the hope. In my honest opinion, hopefully they don't break encryption, but we'll, we're going to dive into that in a second. So, and, the, and part of the point is, and part of me right. speaking out, is to help them make informed decisions so they really understand all the risks and benefits of the decisions that they're going to make. So that's part of, and I think it's incumbent upon folks who care about this issue to speak to each other in a constructive way that's informative, accurate. So you recently had a great piece in Lawfare called Rethinking Encryption. And the first side of uh, the, the first kind of paragraph is called embrace reality and deal with it. So let's talk about reality and then try to deal with it. What is the reality right now of our digital interconnected world? So my perspective on that reality is that exactly that. We have a very complex, multifaceted digital ecosystem that we all live in. And that is reality. That is part of our reality today. And people who think about sort of the digital world as separate from the physical world, I think are kind of missing the point because it's so integrated today, which means that society is so heavily dependent uh, upon the proper functioning of that digital eco- ecosystem that we expect it to be secure and reliable. And we need it to be secure and reliable because it delivers uh, the electricity that we have. It delivers our food. It's how we tr- how we communicate with each other. It's how we travel around the world. If, if the system were to have a catastrophic failure, I think that it really would pose an existential threat to society. And so that has concerned me for a long time especially given the fact that the cybersecurity posture of the United States and its allies is poor. And I keep testing that assessment with computer scientists and other technologists and so on. And every time I bring that up with that group, I I get nods and, and agreement and sometimes comments that I'm being actually too optimistic, that it's even worse than poor. I would even say that um, these systems are so complicated that there is basically... Very few countries, if any, that have a good cybersecurity posture at some point. And this keeps reminding me of the time that um, all the lights in Moscow went out for a couple of minutes by some interesting accident. I'm not I'm not blaming anyone. Everyone, like no one died. It's all okay. But it was weird and it was scary. And I think Moscow is like 12 million people city. Like imagine like all the things that could have happened. Things like that are real. And um, we, we should definitely have a separate episode about cyber warfare because I think that's going to be fascinating. But with going dark and just encryption, encryption is such an important part of this ecosystem and how it works. What would you say our listeners who maybe are new to this topic should know about encryption and what it is? So encryption is a mechanism to secure data from 
malicious actors or really anybody else uh, from seeing it. It's a, m- a mathematical way of, of doing that. It involves It heavily dev- involves math and it involves technology. And it's tricky to implement. Uh, it's easy to make mistakes. It's not a perfect uh, system in, in all instances. But what has happened is that uh, companies, I think, seeing the companies and the government, seeing the very many threats that are out there, the very many malicious actors that are out there, uh, especially those at the state level, right? So the military and intelligence services of hostile foreign uh, states are constantly trying to access data uh, in the United States and data of the United States and its allies. And so encryption is a technology that can be used to protect uh, that data from uh, being uh, surveilled from being corrupted and ma- to make sure that it is, is secure and reliable uh, f- for whatever purpose we want to use it. Right. It's safeguarding it. Exactly. Um, so probably an average listener would have heard about San Bernardino, about Pensacola shooter, all this horrible, horrendous events that happened that would create this tension between law enforcement and companies. And correct me if I'm wrong, the bottom line is... Um, law enforcement agency wants to force, uh, let's say, Apple, um, because a lot of people use iPhones. iPhones are very, very, very common, um, to, in a way, build a door for them to access data on the phones. And the argument is only we're the ones who are going to have the keys to that door. It's going to be backdoor to end-to-end encryption, which we actually, we didn't address what end-to-end encryption is, but we're going to do it in a second. So um, this door is going to be available for us to go in and investigate this high, like, national security crimes. And it's, I would say this, like, law enforcement is not saying they're not going to have a warrant. Like, they're like, we're going to get a warrant, and then we're going to go in. Um, for our listeners, end-to-end encryption is this very specific type of encryption that basically even the company doesn't have access to the data that it protects because it's kind of the way the algorithm is locked. Like no one has access to it aside from the user. Um, So having said that, how do you see this tension unfold in the recent years and days? So the encryption poses real problems for law enforcement in part because law enforcement especially in the United States. Well, I'll just stick with the United States for a moment. Law enforcement in the United States is heavily dependent upon the analysis of the content of communications in order to conduct its investigations. And we can have a serious discussion about whether that makes sense or not, but the reality is today that's what they depend on. They depend upon content. And so when communications are encrypted because they're being transmitted over a end-to-end encrypted messaging app like WhatsApp or iMessage, or uh, data is encrypted on a uh, Android or iPhone because of the way that those uh, devices are constructed, and the government, even with a warrant can't actually access the clear uh, text or the plain text of the data, then that poses a problem. They can't figure out exactly what people are saying, uh, what people have done, what data is on the phone, and that does negatively impact uh, investigations. That is true. They're not they're not lying about that, and so it slows them down and makes certain data unavailable completely. And you know that worries investigators who are trying to stop bad guys from doing things, especially in the terrorism context 
or uh, when they're trying to save somebody who's been kidnapped or rescue a child, these type of things. It, so that so they are quite worried about that, and it, it and it is it is real. It does have a real impact on them. Absolutely, and I think I've I've been in a lot of conversations about both encryption and you know reforming government surveillance mechanisms, and prosecutors or law enforcement um, representatives, they would always, you know, they would get very upset. And I mean, these, so I mentioned those heated conversations, but basically any heated conversation civil liberties people have with law enforcement people, it's each side thinks they're protecting like the good, which is true. They both do. So law enforcement is obviously like, we're, we're, you know, investigating the worst of the worst. We're trying to save a country. People often say, what about 9-11? If we knew, like, that's, I'm not even going to go into that, but I've been yelled at with what about 9-11 probably like 10 times last year. Um, so I've, I've been yelled at a lot about a lot of different things. So I'm, I'm right with <laughs> right. you on that. Yeah. Yes. Um, and I, I mean, I love the passion that exists in those conversations and I absolutely do not dismiss in any way the urgency and the need for that. But now let's talk about like the cons of breaking encryption before we talk about like the reality of how it actually all goes down. So when in, if we force companies, private companies to build a backdoor into end-to-end -end encrypted devices, wouldn't it be extremely harmful, harmful to especially based on like everything that we've discussed before, like what would be the downsides to that? The, the main downside is that it would create a substantial cybersecurity risk for everyone. And law enforcement and the government in general has a responsibility to protect everybody with from all of these risks. And we know there are bad actors at the state level, you know, foreign intelligence services, as I mentioned earlier, and there are a range of, you know, organized crime in, uh, uh, in the cyber area, individual hackers and so on. There are many, many malicious actors that are trying to hack into our systems. And so there is not a known way to allow the government to have sort of a set of keys or some type of lawful access that does not create a cybersecurity risk in the platforms that we're talking about. And and so often law enforcement will say, well, what about Gmail? Because Gmail is encrypted when it's being transmitted, but then when it lands at Google, then it's unencrypted. And so therefore, if you show up with a warrant, you can get the contents of a Gmail account. Well, that's true. Uh, that is how Gmail works. That's because Gmail has a business model where they want to have access to it. And so that's how they've constructed their system. But I don't think you can say that that is a system that is you know, completely protected from hacking because people hack uh, email accounts all the time through phishing attacks and other means to get people's to get access to people's passwords. So, uh, you know, we there there are already many holes in the cybersecurity. I'm I'm sorry, there are many holes in the digital ecosystem, and encryption is one way to be able to plug them against uh, some of these malicious actors. I would also now want to turn to the San Bernardino case, which I think in the recent history restarted a encryption debate. Um, there was, uh, were you general counsel when that was happening? I was general counsel. Okay, so yes. we're not going to go into the litigation part. But uh, what it ended up being was uh, FBI just found another way to hack into that phone, right? 
basically we had a third party that came forward that had a solution and uh, that we didn't know existed and we didn't have at the time that we that we started this but yeah basically the FBI was responsible for investigating what happened and importantly who was responsible and were there other attacks that were planned were there other co-conspirators out there that we were that we needed to be worried about and so we thought it important to run down every investigative lead and in this day and age getting access to someone's iPhone is an obvious litigate uh, I'm sorry an obvious investigative lead to follow and so we thought we had a responsibility to the to the victims and to the society to try to to try to do everything that we could to get access to that type of data. And so we asked Apple, Apple wouldn't do it. And so we went to court and the case fell apart because we found a way to get into the into the device. Right. So you hired a third party to jailbreak it basically. Um am I using the word jailbreak right? Well we found it we found a third party that had a solution that enabled us to access right. the data on the phone, I guess, is the most neutral way to say it. Okay, there we go. Um, one thing I would say is um, that I think you and I should have a separate conversation about, and this is the thing we're not going to agree on, is the legal precedent that would lead into the Fourth Amendment and the Fifth Amendment, and if um, phone and encryption are protected um by those. I think that's going to be a fascinating conversation to have. But that's all we're talking about today. Today we're talking about... Um, uh, so uh, Congress has had a lot of interest in this issue, and the Earned Act ha- has been reported. A leaked draft was reported by the Bloomberg and the information. And it doesn't contain the word encryption, but a lot of the experts and technologists and lawyers say that it's going to create a backdoor to the backdoor. So what is the Earn It Act? How do you see it? What are your opinions of it? Yeah, so the Earn It Act is, again, it's 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 a draft that's been leaked. So uh, the way that people are reading it and construing it is that it basically is an effort to link uh, best practices with respect to uh, eliminating child sexual abuse material from platforms to the protections that companies receive under Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which enable uh, you know companies like Twitter and Facebook to to, it, to exist, yeah, but and to both content moderate and then also not be responsible for everything that everybody says on the uh, on the platform. And so there's this effort to try to link Section 230 liability protection to. Uh, Again, best practices with 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 respect to eliminating uh, child sexual abuse material, CSAM, and but one of the questions or one of the concerns is that well, if you are, there there is a methodology that can be used to scan data, scan communications, scan, scan importantly photographs and videos to detect whether or not they are they represent a uh, CSAM image, and so if the way the act is constructed, there's a commission that will be created consisting of a number of members, uh, also involving a role for the attorney general. And I think the concern is that this commission will mandate that one of the best practices to protect children from the distribution of these images is to have complete scanning of everything, including uh, uh, communications. Yeah. So making sure that you can't use that companies could not use encrypted communications. Uh, let me back up. The, one of the, one of the concerns is that the the 
the companies by putting into place encrypted communication platforms, especially end-to-end encrypted uh, communication platforms in this context, that they will then not be able to scan those communications to detect the uh, child sexual abuse material. And that is not a best practice that is not acceptable or so this commission might conclude. And therefore, they might effectively ban it or restrict it or something in, in that way. And the, the concerns were about the composition of the attorney of the uh, the composition of the uh, commission, giving the attorney general essentially a veto over it. And so uh, it was viewed basically as a as a backdoor into mandating backdoors. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the Earn It Act is still up in the air, so we don't know what the actual bill would be when it gets introduced. Um, the way it exists right now, Tech Freedom's position is that creating a commission that is non-elected members or that are in it, that's going to basically create regulation of high-level free speech and encryption for amendment rights of people is absolutely not only unconstitutional, but just bad, bad, bad idea. Um, We'll see how that story develops. But as of right now, it is very worrisome. And we're recording this uh, on February 14th. Happy Valentine's Same Day. Same to you. Yes. Yeah. We're recording on February 14th. On the 19th, the Department of Justice is having a workshop uh, that's focusing on Section 230. But if you ask me, I would put my money that Attorney General Barr is going to definitely make in his opening speech uh, a pitch to do more on encryption. As he's done before, like he's he's talked before about pressuring Facebook and like a lot of other companies, and he does not believe in encryption. And honestly, a lot of prosecutors I talk to don't believe in encryption because, again, they're like, "We're the good guys. We're trying to solve crime. Like, why are you trying to stop me from solving crimes?" And I'm like, "Well, it's like our constitutional rights. Please don't take our constitutional rights away." It's 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 a very repeating conversation. It's a very but the point that I tried to make in the piece that I wrote uh, uh, on lawfare is that I think that law enforcement is misconstruing or not thinking about their role uh, clearly enough in light of the cybersecurity re- uh, threat, in light of the cybersecurity threat that I was talking about earlier. For example, the mission of the FBI is to protect the American people and uphold the Constitution. And it has to do those things simultaneously. It has to do both those things simultaneously. And so in light of the what I, th- what I think is an existential threat that society faces from cybersecurity uh, flaws and risks and malicious cyber actors, I think law enforcement needs to rethink their calibration uh, or recalibrate how they think about the risk and their duty, their duty to protect all of society from cyber threats. And so, yes, they do face problems in individual investigations right now with respect to encryption. There are potentially ways to deal with that, especially making better use of metadata uh, and also making better use of open source information, making better better use of uh, human source uh, information, informants, and so on and so forth, that I think they become too dependent upon access to content and it's just not going to be available. Encryption is not is a is a genie that's not going back in the bottle. They have to deal with the reality that encryption is out there and that if somehow it is prohibited or banned in the United States, it's not going to happen all over the world because people demand this kind of uh, protection uh, for legitimate reasons. I mean, legitimate people demand this kind of protection. And so, uh, you know, I think they need to rethink their, their approach to this uh, 
that in a way that would also be consistent with their duties and responsibilities as investigators and prosecutors. I would like our listeners to now go back a minute and re-listen to what Jim just said again and again and again, and until it just engraves in your memory. That's former general counsel of FBI people. So I think a national security more maybe I'm not going to call you a hawk, but like you know you were with FBI and me agree on something. And if we both can agree on something, I think that should be the reasonable middle ground for everyone, if you ask me. And before we move to other things, I just wanted to also mention a great uh, research that was done by Professor Jennifer Daskal at the American University School of Law. And it actually talked not about like the tensions you and I were discussing. It talked about law enforcement not having, especially local law enforcement, enough resources or training to even investigate uh, any cyber crimes or anything connected with technology where police departments or any other entity that is responsible for investigations don't even know how to do it. Or they would have a lot of phones in their custody, but they would never be able to access them, not even because there's a, they're encrypted, but, but just because they don't have the tools, they don't have the you know, the system, the infrastructure, or they're not trained or they don't even know what metadata is. So I think that's a very important part of the puzzle is giving our law enforcement more resources and more training and more money to do that. Because as we, I mean, we're in the digital era and it's only going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And um, I think that's a structure that's not fully caught up, especially on um, lower, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure like big law enforcement agencies have whole divisions or department. I don't know exactly how um, they're structured, but the big federal law enforcement agencies yeah. have lots of resources. They, they're not unlimited, but they, they do have a lot more resources than state and local authorities. That's a very important part of the puzzle. And we're going to link to that research too, in our show notes and to Jim's uh, piece that he mentioned. So I agree, I agree with you completely with respect to providing more resources for state and local uh, authorities, especially in the area of uh, protecting children. I mean, I think though, if people have the idea that if you eliminate encryption, all of a sudden all children will be protected, I think that's just completely wrong. That is just that the the society's failures with respect to protecting children are complex. There are many people that are responsible, uh, especially including the the perpetrators, but, uh, and one of the biggest problems is simply just local, state and local authorities not having adequate resources. Many, these companies are constantly reporting examples when they find uh, child sexual abuse material on their platforms. They report that as they have to under under law to the government. And then those uh, reports are then sent to state and local authorities, for example. A very small percentage of those referrals actually end up in an investigation or a conviction. And I think part of the problem there is that state and local authorities just don't have enough officers to track down, to, to, to run down all the cases, and they don't even have enough technical resources really to just go out and do the basic uh, computer forensic work of just going to a suspect's house with a warrant and imaging the computer and then being able to analyze that. I mean, that is somewhat sophisticated, but it's pretty common now. And there are not, simply not enough of those people out there to be able to do this. So I think that if, if Congress believes that by passing uh, some piece of legislation along the lines of the Earned Act, that that will miraculously protect children, that's just not correct. Um, on that note, I think that's a great way to wrap up that discussion. Obviously, we can go for hours. This is fascinating. I would love to have you back to to have a legal battle. We can have like a little moot court. Um, I'm happy to do it. <laughs> but before I let you go, um, do you mind uh, telling us a little bit more just 
high level on what else do you do at our street institute um, because you also focus a lot on cybersecurity and what kind of projects are you right now very excited about that you guys are involved in so we're working on a range of projects focused in part on uh, addressing challenges raised by emerging technology so we're focused a lot on that but one of the uh projects that our team is working on, uh, Paul Rosenzweig and Catherine Waldron are especially focusing on it, is a a cyber metrics project. And so we're trying to understand whether we could come up, as a society, we could come up with a set of metrics and measures to really figure out in a quantitative way how well we're doing against all the cyber threats that are out there. There really is not a uniform set of metrics that everybody agrees on that, that measure the problem and that accurately assess whether or not a particular solution to the problem is effective or not. And so boards of directors at companies, executives, government officials have a hard, have a hard time quantifying whether they're being successful, whether their cyber dollars are being uh, well spent, whether other organizations that they're going to either do business with or interact with are doing a good job themselves with respect to cyber. And so we're trying to do what we are doing research uh, on that to try to see whether there is such a a set of metrics that we that we could come up with. So that's one thing we're doing. We're doing several other projects to try to enhance the ability of technologists, mainly coming out of college and graduate school, to uh, play a more robust role in the policy debate. So to basically speak more effectively to policymakers to understand how how the policy world works and to uh, and to and to be more effective at engaging so that policymakers when they make these hard decisions are doing it on the basis of accurate technical understanding of what what in the world is happening and then real quickly just uh, another thing we're working on is to try to enhance the ability of uh, states around the United States to uh, improve their cybersecurity posture through uh, through local means and making sure that they are making effective use of all the uh, authorities that they have, all the resources that they have. So, for example, we're working with the California Guard uh, in that regard, to, which has a responsibility for protect, protecting the state of California and, and the counties in the state to uh, fend off all these malicious uh, cyber attacks. You're doing God's work, and I think the projects you just mentioned are not as controversial as like talking about encryption. I think everyone agrees we should train more technologists. Everyone agrees our states should have more cybersecurity. And I think in the galaxy that is technology, we're all not speaking the same language. So creating one general language is such an important piece. So then people can actually come to the table and talk about the same thing and not get upset. Because I've seen a lot of people get upset about things that don't even correlate with each other. Um, so thank you so much for doing that. Where can our listeners find your work and you? And um, are you on Twitter? Uh, where our Street's website? Uh, our Street is uh, rstreet.org. Um, I'm on Twitter as the Jim Baker. And uh, Our Street has a Twitter handle too, which I'm drawing a blank on right now. I think it's just at Our Street. And so, uh, yeah, so we're out there and uh, happy to engage. And we really, we really do look for ways to reach out to everyone to make sure that we're having a robust debate about these topics and more that is uh, really nuanced and brings to the table everybody who has an equity in the issue so that we can find a way forward together. Well, amazing. Thank you so much for joining the show. I would love to have you back. I know you're very busy, but next time you're on Capitol Hill, just let me know. I'd love to be back. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Please leave us a review so others can find the show.
The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.